Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. Ezra chapter 10, as we get going for tonight, a shift in perspective. Ezra chapter 9, it was I and us, if you look at those pronouns. And then the text entirely changes tone as we get into verse 1. It's then back to the third person, he and they. Uh, not that there's a lot of meaning there, but just noting the shift in writing style. Uh, we start a new kind of final section here. Now, while Ezra was praying and while he was confessing, weeping, and bowing down before the house of God, a very large assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him from Israel, for the people wept bitterly. So we get Last week we studied the confession of Ezra, looking at the sin of the people, and he had a heart to, if you remember, revive, repair, rebuild, and protect. That there's a revival going on in Israel, and it has a lot to do with rebuilding the things that God has asked them to do and actually guard and protect it. Uh, his confession was deep. It's deep in chapter 10, too. Uh, we see indicators like weeping and bowing, uh, written with sincerity. And it's not just a show, it's something he's doing before the house of God. He's confessing the sins of Israel and taking a leadership role in that. Um, it's interesting that the, when we see God's people looking carefully at sin, there's often an internal direction for that. So he's looking at Israel's sin, and there's a confession here that's that's public, but it's also an internal confession that Ezra's making. The, here we see a very large assembly. Again, the emphatic uh, chapter 9-4, it was everyone that trembled, but here it seems like a lot more people start to show up. So it starts with Ezra, goes to a group of people, goes to everybody that trembles before the Lord, and now it's a very large assembly. So at each stage between chapter 9 and 10, we see a growing number of people that are becoming attracted to this idea of purity. And the people wept very bitterly. And again, and the idea there is it wasn't just a show. This was sincere enough to have actual emotional response to it. So a lot of times I rip on emotions in the faith, that faith is a thing of logic and reason. This passage gives us the opposite. In this case, when reacting to sin, there's a very emotional reaction that comes out of it, indicating that at some level there is a place for some emotions in the faith. And we see biblical examples of that too. Like a lot of things in the Bible, it's not either or. There's something kind of, there's a narrow road in between. And for those people that say, no, I connect with God emotionally more than I do with logic and reason, this is one of those passages where clearly this is part of what is central to a revival. There's an actual repulsing against sin for logical reasons, but an emotional reaction to that too. Oh, how could I be here? And what can we do? Verse 2. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, one of the sons of Elam, spoke up. And he said to Ezra, We have trespassed against our God and have taken pagan wives from the peoples of the land. Yet now there is hope in Israel in spite of this. I wonder if this is part of what Ezra was praying for. That if he just steps in as an authority and starts telling them what they've done wrong, but they don't have that change of heart themselves, then it's an act of force. But when Shechaniah in verse 2 steps up and he sees what's wrong with what's going on, it's not just Ezra noticing it, it's people being convicted of their own sin. And I think as believers, this is an interesting thing. Be convicted of your own sin before you point fingers at other people. And Jesus taught that too. Uh, be careful about finding the speck in someone else's eye when you have a log in your own eye. And Ezra waits and, and what's going on in the revival is people are independently seeing it. Shechaniah, we don't know who this character is, though he's one of the sons of Elam, implies that he's in a leadership role of some sort. And he steps up and, and confesses the same thing we saw back in chapter 9. And the sin was they had taken pagan wives. I think it's important here that we note this. These are the, it's not the fact that they're Gentiles, right? So the pagan wives, it's not just that they took Gentile wives. There was a whole group of people called the Nethanim that have traveled with and helped to rebuild this temple. They were Gentiles. They were not pagan Gentiles. They were 
Yahweh-following, God-following people. The problem here isn't that they're Gentiles, that they're intermarrying some sort of genetic mix of things going on. The problem here is that they're pagan, which is a set of practices, not an ethnicity. The problem is they're bringing idols into the home, and along with those idols, they're bringing in to the home and the family and the city of, and, and Israel itself, they're bringing in the practices that go with paganism, which is uglier than what you learn about when you study the Greeks in elementary school. The practices had to do with human sacrifices. They had to do with body harming and cutting and piercing and tattooing, doing all sorts of things to the human body to make it other than what God created. And intermixed with this pagan stuff usually were massively dysfunctional sexual practices that actually did cause a kind of uncleanness. And when they dug up some of these bodies of the Canaanites, they found them just rife with venereal diseases. So some of what's going on here when they say unclean, the idea isn't that they're unclean because they're Gentiles, because there are Gentile wives that aren't a problem. The problem here specifically in the scripture is that they took pagan wives, which meant all of those practices came with it. Pagan, in fact, in the Hebrew is nokri, which is a word for strange. It's not even the same word as Gentile. The word for Gentile is goy. And so it's, it's not even close to the word goy. It's noki. These are strange wives. So they're taking wives that are coming with a bunch of practices and they're corrupting the homes of the people that are there. And we know from last chapter, it was the leaders were the worst. Typically, the word nokri gets used with harlots. A strange woman is someone who prostitutes herself and has strange sexual practices. The root of the disaster then are these carnal covenants being made with women that want nothing to do with Yahweh. That's the problem. So let's also be reminded of the law so we can see that. Leviticus 19.33. This is the law that they're breaking. Uh, and if a stranger dwells with you in your land, uh, the word for stranger there is not nokri, it's gar, but it basically means the set of strange practices. Same idea. You shall not mistreat them. The stranger who dwells among you shall be to you as one born among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt, for I am the Lord your God. In other words, I'm sorry, that's, not the, that's the law of people living in Israel that weren't Israelite. Sorry, they didn't break this law. They're actually keeping it. So the problem, if they say, a stranger can dwell among you and be as one born among you, the idea is that they practice the same religion. And so the pagan or the strange here is the issue. It's not the issue that they're a foreigner living in the land. And I just want to be really clear about that. They start with recognition of the sin, but that's not where the confession stops. This confession also comes with action. Verse 3, Now therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and those who have been born to them according to the advice of my master and those who tremble at the commandment of our God, and let it be done according to the law. So again, they're referencing the law. We'll go back and see that. The idea of putting away a wife, this is one of, probably one of the hardest verses or chapters we've gotten to. It seems like putting away a wife, even a pagan or strange wife, would be a really tough thing to do. And in verse 3, we see there's actually children involved in this too. So we got to put our heads around this. This is, a very, this is a difficult thing. How would God want a, a wife to be set out or put out? And why would he want these children not have their other parent involved too? So the idea, I think, of what's going on here is we got the law in previous chapters. We are now getting through the histories, instances where that law becomes very complex. And what they're faced with here is two laws that are getting broken, which one is the more serious of the two? And which one do we need to react to? So according to the law, the consequence of idolatry is to be rejected by the Lord God Almighty. 1 Samuel 15, 23. In 1 Samuel, if you practice idolatry, you're supposed to be put out from the people of Israel. You don't get to live in these towns. You don't get to be part of these households. If you're going to practice a Canaanite religion, you need to pack up your stuff and move and go out of the country. According to the law, I think they're referencing Deuteronomy 18. And if you want to flip there, we'll read from a couple Deuteronomy passages. Deuteronomy 18. The first problem is idolatry. And in Deuteronomy 18, it makes it very clear that there's no idolatry that's going to be part of the nation of Israel. 
This is the reason they got sent to Babylon. This is why Ezra tore his clothes. He couldn't believe he was seeing this stuff popping up in the household. We're not as far along like Rehoboam and Jeroboam when it's, it's out on the hilltops and it's in the cities and it's public. It's still only in the household, but they're recognizing this as a sin before it gets to that stage. And they're saying, we got to end this where it started because in the era of the kings, this got out of control and we lost our kingdom because of it. So dealing with idolatry. Deuteronomy 18, verse 13. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God for these nations which you will dispossess listened to the soothsayers and diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not appointed such for you. Law number one. No idol worship, no diviners, no soothsayers, no pagan practices. Get this out of your homes. So we struggle with this, I think, because they're making a judgment call. And they're making a very hard decision. And one way to look at it is, you know, they're not making the judgment. They're simply reading the scripture saying we're supposed to be living by this standard. And we're not. And part of the rending of the clothes of last chapter was how horrible this is. The implications of this are significant. And then the other piece, I think especially with Shechaniah, we'll see at the end of the chapter, he's one of the people, this is in his family. So they're not just making decisions for other people. The reason this is so heartrending is they're looking at their own families and how they've sinned in this regard. And to make this right, they got to make some really tough decisions. Okay, the second one, flip forward to Deuteronomy 24. I just want to point this out. God actually accounts for all of this in his law. A careful study of the law, there is a prescribed path that they're supposed to take. Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. When a man has taken a wife and married her, and it comes to pass that she finds no favor in his eyes, because he has found some uncleanness in her, then let him write her a bill of divorcement and give it in her hand and send her out of his house. Now, when we get to Jesus, they're abusing this law. But the uncleanness that they're talking about there in context is entirely talking about idolatry. And strange women or, or, or harloting yourself out at the temple is the kind of marriage that means that you don't know who the kid belongs to. And it's the kind of marriage that would be absolutely against what God ordained for a family because the women might be acting in adultery and the men might be too. So in this kind of situation, what it means when it says to send her out of his house means that you take this strange woman or pagan woman and you'd send her back to her family. So it's not that she's not cared for, it's that wherever she came from, whatever culture she came from, she goes back to live with those people. And then you got the question of the child. Uh, we know that this is not a good situation by anybody's standard, but would it be better if the child lost their mother or if the child lost their father? And that's really the question here. And according to the law, you, they, but basically they're saying that they would write these women a bill of divorce where it's legal, it's structured. It's not just kicking her out of the house and hoping she survives the night. She would have a bill of divorcement so that she could go back to her family and that contract was annulled. And, and in some senses, it was never really a contract in the first place because the Jewish men were not supposed to be marrying pagan women. So it's not something that God had ordained. Again, Jesus looks at all this divorce stuff and he says this was never God's intention. God's, God hates divorce. Malachi 2.17, the word hate gets used. He hates this situation. This is the worst possible situation. But pagan strangeness and idol worship in the home, that's even worse. So you have to pick between the lesser of two evils. And this is where judgment and justice gets very complex. What's worse, to leave the pagan idol worship in your family and in your city, or to send this woman and her child back to the family that she came from and start to have households that are built on purity? And this becomes a question that they, it's absolutely heartrending. And again, all the emotion we saw in the last chapter and what we saw in the first couple verses, this is what makes this a tough decision and a tough sit through. Frankly, this is the end conversation of the book of Ezra. So they're taking, I think, if the idea is to purify our homes and to get sin out of our life, sometimes getting rid of that sin hurts. Sometimes getting rid of our sin means giving up a part of our lifestyle we've become accustomed to. And I think this is the toughest part of this application is, what do you mean I got to get rid of this or that or this? And there are these things that we've justified. We've made excuses for them. 
But what they're doing is they're putting a separation between us and God, and we have to ask the question, what's the greater of the two evils? A separation with God or getting rid of this sin and, and casting it out of your family? As a typology, this is a lot easier. Getting sin out of your home is a lot easier to talk about than getting rid of a pagan wife and a real family and real relationships. So also these marriages were not supposed to happen. I mentioned that. So Shechaniah is then applying the law. That's the whole point of that tour through Deuteronomy. They're applying the law in the way that they can, and I think that this is an accurate application of the law when you put all these different passages together. You weren't supposed to marry these women, but now that you did, you need to actually recognize that the idol worship they're bringing into your home is going to destroy your children. And so you have to make some decisions about sending these women home. It says nothing about killing them. They did not do mass murders. Even though under the law, idol worship was punishable by death. So they have that law too. The fact that Shechaniah and the Israelites send these women home is the lesser damage of the two laws that they could pick from. They could have just had mass executions. But they don't. They choose the more merciful path, which is to send them home. And between those two things, you're looking at, again, one way to read this is look at how cruel the Israelites were. Another way to read this is actually under the law, they're being much more merciful than they should have been or could have been. Because I think the should have is God says, I love mercy. I prefer mercy. And when two laws come into contradiction like this or, or they're both bouncing against each other, isn't mercy the better of the two? And God's established this through the prophets. This is what he prefers. So then you ask the question, well, what if the Canaanites just choose to follow Yahweh? I want to argue a lot of them did. So when this came back to the homes and it said the idol's got to go or you got to go, we have a very small percentage of the population that this actually applies to. If you glance down at the end of the chapter, you're going to see a list of names. That list of names is extremely small. Because I think what happened is they said, we have to get rid of the idol worship. And a lot of people were like, well, I'm not attached to it. You can take the idol and go grind it in the backyard and go Yahweh. I'm on board. And if they say that, they become part of the Nethanim, non-Jewish people that are following Yahweh. And it's a really simple way to keep your family together. The only way the family breaks up is if someone refuses to be part of, of purifying the home. So um, you take this and you put it all together. And again, we'll get down to verse 44. It implies that there's very few left over. But what is going to happen is the entire group of people, is, they're going to repent. And they're going to get these idols out of their home. Verse 4. Arise, for this matter is your responsibility. We are, we are with you. Be of good courage and do it. So Ezra confirms it. He confesses it. Um, he hands this off to the families. And the idea of be of good courage and do it we keep seeing that in the Old Testament. It's not just enough to know the law. To follow it sometimes means hard decisions. And it means giving up things that in the flesh we've come accustomed to, but if we want to follow the Lord, we need to get rid of them. So to make this decision is to have some courage because you're going to make some people unhappy. And again, we see that in the Old Testament too. God's goal isn't that everybody's always happy, but God's goal is that everyone has peace with him. That's the ultimate goal. Happiness is not. Insisting on purity in the household only causes anger in the rebellious heart. But in the heart that wants to serve God, it is easy to repent and turn and get back into the good graces of God. And someone who wants God in their life, this isn't a hard decision. Like, oh yeah, we're going to get rid of those things. They've taken our eyes off of the Lord and they've put our eyes on other things. Verse 5, Then Ezra arose, remember he's still on his knees praying, and he made the leaders of the priests, the Levites, and all Israel swear an oath that they would do according to his word. And they swore an oath. Ezra exercises not leadership over them, but he waited for Shechaniah to say, you need to tell us to do this. And then when put in that position, we see an example of a godly man exercising leadership and authority and doing it with confidence because he knows what the word says. So he is given leadership by Shechaniah and the people, and then he takes that leadership and he uses it for the people. And he begins with leadership. He doesn't begin with the masses. He starts with himself, and he expects more of himself, and other people immediately take on that vision. So that's the practice. I think we see that in the church today. That's the practice of faith. When we hang out together and we see how 
we're living and we get into each other's lives a little bit, we take inspiration from how other people are figuring out how to get through life. And we're like, wow, that's a nice way to handle that. And that's part of how we sharpen each other and how we make each other, I think, prepared for the work of God. Then Ezra rose up from before the house of God and he went into the chamber of Jehohanan, the son of Elashib, Eliashib. And when he came there, he ate no bread, drank no water, for he mourned because of the guilt of those from the captivity, doing battle with sin. So he's given the command, he's, people are going to go back to their families, but then the eating no bread and drinking no water is what you would call a full fast. Nothing's going in. And the idea then is he's committed to this action. They've made an oath to do it, but he's going to still cover it in prayer. And in the morning and in the, the full fasting, he has a nation of people to start praying for. Here's the deal. Oftentimes we make vows. We just got New Year's taken care of. We often make vows. And sometimes we even make vows before God. There's a difference between making a vow and keeping it. And a lot of that has to do with the spiritual battle. We have a will to follow God. But to actually follow God, Ezra understands that's a spiritual battle that needs to happen in every home and in every heart. So he starts praying for it. Here's what we got to do. And they issued a proclamation throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the descendants of the captivity that they must gather at Jerusalem. And whoever would not come within three days, according to the instructions of the leaders and elders, all his property would be confiscated and he himself would be separated from the assembly of those of the captivity. Again, they're not murdering or executing people here. They're just saying, if you're going to do this, then your land, you're not going to have land in the new Israel. You're not going to be part of our community. You're not going to be part of our country. But people have a choice to show up too. So they give people the choice. Ezra then is praying for revival in the form of action, not just in theory or in heart. And this is perhaps the balance to emotion. I talked about that before. Yes, emotion is part of revival in that it, the emotion gets our heart softened. But if the emotion isn't followed up with action, then it just becomes futility. It becomes a, 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 a weekend high that they're on. So this idea of being separated while amongst the people, literally the same idea is being consecrated. And that they, do, they cannot be part of the people of God if they're going to continue to do things of sin. So we mentioned this last week. It's a call to purity. It's essential in what's going. And I think this gets muddied often. Um, in the Word of God, there's no muddiness around purity. In American culture, there's tons of muddy. What does it mean to be pure in the kingdom of God? How can we be pure people, consecrated and set, set apart? The scripture, there's not a hint of ambiguity around this. And I, I just want to, I'm going to read a little longer passage, but I want to, like understand what we're reading in Ezra here also applies to us in the church. We should be pure, pursuing purity at the same level that these folks are because that's what God asks of us. And again, it's really easy in the church to downplay this obligation to pursue purity. And we often in our own heart will come up with excuses for why we do these things we know we shouldn't do. So here's the thing. First John 3. Yes, this comes right from the women's Bible study. 1 John 3, verse 6, Whoever abideth in him sins not. Whoever sins has not seen him and has not known him. Little children, let no man deceive you. He that does righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. He that commits sin is of the devil, for the devil sins from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. No ambiguity here. Whoever is born of God does not commit sin, for his seed remains in him. He cannot sin because he's born of God. And in this, the children of God are manifest, and the children, and the children of the devil, whoever does not, does not righteousness, is not of God, neither he that loves, not his brother. If you don't love your brother... And find a way to do that, you are John saying you don't fall in the category of the kingdom. Is that extreme? I mean, there's no ambiguity when you look at this. So then, yet we all are sinners and we've all fallen short of the glory of God. Again, it's somewhere between those two things. And and the and the Bible doesn't make this easy. How do you walk? And the answer is you follow the Holy Spirit. 
We have hearts that want to get rid of every piece of leaven in our heart, every little tidbit of sin. We go after it, we target, and we try to get rid of it. But we also know at some level we are sinners. There's the acts of righteousness, which are our behaviors, which we have a lot more control over than our heart. Jesus makes this point. Remember when he says, you guys say don't murder, but I say if you even think a naughty word about somebody else, you're, you're, as, you're as bad as a murderer. That there is something about our heart that we are sinners. But the call to be righteous people, to be people that act in a way that glorifies God, is a separate kind of conversation. And finding that balance is part of what they're doing in the book of Ezra. The heart of believer, the one that knows God, is a heart that actually desires to do the right thing. We want to love our family. We have a heart for our brother. And when we make mistakes, it actually pains us when we do. We feel guilty when we do wrong. That's the point. And according to John, that's the seed of God that he put in you, is the one that recognizes what you're doing is the wrong thing. So Ezra doesn't call these people in. He and Israel are guilty of not tending to the spiritual life of the nation. And it says, he himself would be separated. The people that don't want to come in and deal with this, they've already excused themselves from the body. Now, this gets tough when you're in a church and you got to talk to somebody because they're doing something that's just plainly out of line with the scriptures. And you got to sit down and say, look, I, the scriptures don't say this specifically, but you keep picking in other people's ears. you got to stop doing that because you're making people uncomfortable and that's a stumbling block. And the scripture does say don't be a stumbling block. So this thing where you put your finger in everybody's ear, you got to stop doing that. And that conversation is never fun in the church. But a person that's of God would go, oh, shoot, I didn't mean to be a stumbling block. I'm so sorry. I'll totally stop doing that. But a rebellious heart's like, who are you to tell me I can't put my finger in people's ears when I feel like it? Right? And the, the difference between those hearts, there's no ambiguity. It, it's a very clear difference between people who want to do right and people who don't care what other people think. They're living for themselves. And, and that it becomes so obvious, the more you're in the Word, the more you see that that's the disposition of a godly heart versus a non-godly heart. And actions are things God can forgive, but the heart is something that God's calling our hearts to be broken before Him. So it's not just the wives. It says He Himself would be separated. It's very clear this is also the husbands on that sentence. So He Himself being male pronouns. Anyone that follows after the idols and refuses to deal with this in their home, they're being excommunicated from the nation of Israel. Verse 9. So all the men of Judah and Benjamin gathered at Jerusalem within three days. Don't miss the verse 9. All the men of Judah and Benjamin gathered, which is why we're now talking about wives. All the men show up. They want to make this right and figure it out. So this evidence of a massive revival at this point we went from Ezra to a few of the leaders, those that were shuddered or, or were trembled at God's word. Then we had a larger group. Then we had many people. Verse 9, everybody, the entire nation, shows up at this proclamation. This is a true movement of God's people to repent. And the fact that they all show up, this is impressive. Like, when do you ever see this in human history? Everyone shows up. It was the ninth month, and they even marked the day, like, we got to put this down on the calendar. It was the ninth month on the twelfth of the month, and all the people, again, sat in the open square of the house of God, trembling because of this matter and because of heavy rain. <laughs> like it's raining, too. Like, it, you know, yes, we're guilty of sin, but the rain just is like doubles down on that. Wow. Man. This is the thing. These folks, in their humility and in their sin, they're closer to God than most of America today. This heart to say that their, their hearts are trembling before God, we live in an era where people don't tremble at all before God's Word. In fact, they're defiant against it. And that, that's absolutely... They should be terrified of what God thinks of what's coming out of their mouth. But not only is there not terror, there's this boldness to sin. But these people are actually there sitting in the rain, feeling like wet puppies. And then Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, you have transgressed. He doesn't make this seeker friendly. He doesn't sugarcoat this at all. You've transgressed and have taken pagan wives. 
adding to the guilt of Israel. Now, therefore, make confession to the Lord God of your fathers. You're not accountable to Ezra. You're accountable to God himself. And Ezra makes that very clear. And do his will. Separate yourselves from the people of the land and from the pagan wives. Disconnect your relationships with the pagans around you. This is not the era of Judges or Joshua where they actually drove those people out. Because at this point in his history, those people are settling into buildings. They're not nomadic people where they can just be driven to another part. Go up to Turkey and move your sheep that way. But, but at the same token, even though these are more static agricultural societies that are forming, you're still supposed to separate yourself. You're still, still supposed to make a boundary between you and the pagan life. By the way, Ezra presents, I think, one of the shortest speeches of the Bible. He's not a man of many words. You've transgressed. Stop it. It's a pretty short sermon. Like, Dickers, why can't you get it down to that? It's clear. It's to the point, And it's forceful enough for anybody to understand. And it's the gospel message. This is an altar call. You have transgressed. You've acted unfaithfully, treacherously. You've had sin. And the word transgressed is actually to try to cover the sin. He names the sin. You've taken pagan wives. And the consequence of it is that you're guilty. And then he commands them to come out of that sin. And again, this is the gospel message. But there's a way out. Stop. So now, therefore, verse 11, what they do after recognizing their sin is far more important than what they did before, they before when they were doing the sins. Make confession. Go to God and admit what you've done. Admit it by name. And do his will. What good is confession if there isn't a repentance that comes with it? If you keep going the same direction you're always going, that's an insincere confession. You didn't mean it because you didn't stop it. And again, sometimes with habitual sin, this can be something that people beat themselves up over. Man, I, I, I know in my heart I want to stop, but I just can't stop. And part of that is that there is a relationship where you make confession to the Lord to do his will because part of stopping the sin is the Holy Spirit taking root in your heart. In other words, you don't have the ability to beat sin. And oftentimes Christians think they do and they don't. It's the Holy Spirit that will change you so that you can do battle with that sin. So you pray for both. Lord, help me stop the sin. Help me to not have a heart for it. But Lord, also change my heart and help me to take joy in the things of God to replace the desire for sin for a desire to revive, repair, rebuild, and protect. Help me to build your kingdom. And separating yourself is then part of the making the confession and doing God's will is to set yourself apart. Psychologists would say if there's a pattern of behavior, you try to identify the trigger for that pattern. What situations get you into trouble? And to separate yourselves is to make a wall of demarcation to rebuild or protect where you get rid of those triggers. You get rid of the situations in which you tend to fall into sin. So if that's the case, then you are separating yourself out. And I think families are a huge part of how this happens. You don't tend to get in trouble when you're with other people all the time. Actually, there's some friends where they, you just get into trouble with them all the time. Maybe separate yourself from those friends because they're just getting you into trouble. But when you come into the body of believers, hopefully you have friends where you're not getting into trouble all the time. So you set this clear boundary around yourself. You separate yourself. Repentance is then just the beginning. You confess, then you live differently, and it's a lifetime call to be consecrated. Again, I don't even feel like I'm in the Old Testament anymore. This rings like what Jesus taught his people. Secular folks call this intolerance. Yeah, we're intolerant of certain behaviors. Let's just use the word appropriately. I won't tolerate certain things in my life. And this has to do with like building a household. If you're married, if you have kids, if you're with other people in your home, then there are certain things that don't belong in that house. And you and those other people in the household hold each other accountable to that. The Bible doesn't call it intolerance. The Bible calls it consecration, separation. What the Bible calls good the secular world often calls not good. And what the secular world calls not good, we often call holiness and separation. It, it, to pursue purity. I think this is what David meant when he's like, I delight in your law. 
And I think about it day and night, and I think at the end of the day, there is no better law for humanity than one the, the one God wrote. This is the best we're going to get in the face of a world full of sinners. And we just delight in it. So we don't have to be intolerant of other people to be consecrated ourselves. We just are separating ourselves from people. We can be kind and humane to everyone we meet, and the Bible shows how mercifully that happens. And we, have, we can have a great regard for other people, but we don't have to accept or regard pagan behaviors and worship systems that are in defiance of God. And there is a difference. And a lot of times people will say, we hate the sin, but we love the sinner. And that's where that, that principle is found all over the Bible. He doesn't say go out and attack the pagans. It says separate yourself from the pagans. Draw a line and de determine what you are versus what they are. Then all the assembly answered and said with a loud voice, yes, there's an emphatic there. Should be an exclamation point in the English. As you have said, so we must do. But there are many people. <laughs> but this is a big project, Ezra. It is a season of heavy rain, and we're not able to stand outside. <laughs> it's cold out here. Nor is this the work of one or two days, for there are many of us who have transgressed in this matter. Again, an image of the church. We do not come to the church as perfect people. Quite the opposite. It's cold. It's rainy. It's uncomfortable. This is going to take some time to get this done. And note that there's no problem with that. It's not like Ezra says, no, you got to do it now. There's a practicality here. There's lots of people we have to sort out. And there's a humanity to it all. And it's raining and it's cold. Like, can we do this on a nice day? And think of the mercy of this. If you're going to cast out a person who refuses to leave their paganism and you're going to say you need to leave, are you going to do that on a, on a rainy day? Or are you going to wait for nice weather so they can make the trip back to their homes? That's part of what they're considering here. And frankly, I see that as just merciful. The goal here isn't to like hurt people. The goal here is to simply draw some lines and to create those boundaries we read about last week. Uh, the, 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 the travel that will be required with this many people, it's a mercy to wait a few days until nicer weather. And so they bring that to Ezra. We can do this thing you've said, Ezra. A, yes, let's do it. But can we do it on a better, can we do this with some kindness and act that way? And we've seen the Jewish people do this again and again. Yes, we'll carry out the law, but what's the kindest way we can do this? Please, verse 4, verse 4. 14, verse 14, please let the leaders of our entire assembly stand and let all those in our cities who have taken pagan wives come at the appointed times, we're going to set up a calendar, together with the elders and the judges of their cities until the fierce wrath of God is turned away from us in this matter. Only Jonathan, the son of Ashehel, and Jazaziah, the son of Tikva, opposed this. And Meshulam, and Shabbatai, the Levite, gave them support. It's interesting. All of Israel has assembled, and we only have two people that had a problem with this. So again, there's a perspective thing here that people tend to skip if they want to just attack the situation. They literally take a stand, showing agreement with clarity and unity that everybody's on board with what's about to happen. And so you could say, is Jonathan against the idea of casting out pagan wives? Or is he against the idea of waiting until the weather gets nicer? And it doesn't really clarify between those two. So either it's that they're being too permissive of these people, or it's that they're being too harsh on these people. Either way, Jonathan's, they have a unity of direction on this. This is not just Ezra being a tyrant. This is Ezra pointing out the law and everyone agreeing that's the right way to read this. Great uniformity. Verse 16, then the descendants of the captivity did so. And Ezra the priest, with certain heads of the father's households, were set apart, same word, consecrated, by the father's households, each of them by name. And they sat down on the first day of the tenth month to examine the matter. By the first day of the first month, they finished questioning all the men who had taken pagan wives. We need to note, they gave us dates for a reason. Look at how much time this took. This is a three to four month process that they went through. So this is not just kicking people out of the house at three in the morning and saying, good luck. 
there's time to pack, there's time to make arrangements, they're contacting families back home, and the questioning period is an opportunity for those pagan people to give up their paganism. So they have to be resolute in their paganism in this situation. This is, again, a principle, maybe I'm stretching, we can talk about this afterwards, but when people worry about the mark of the beast, and if we're going to get tricked into taking the mark of the beast, it's inconsistent with other instances in the Bible like this. When we see in the Bible these decisions being made by groups of people, biblically speaking, there's no doubt or question about who's pagan and who's Jewish. And there is so much opportunity to be Jewish, to live with the Jews, that you, honestly, there's, this is more patience than any other people on earth have ever had with people that are treasonous to the ideas of the culture. In the human sense, these people tend to get murdered, executed, or cast out immediately. And the Jews just don't operate like that. And when they're at their best, it looks something like this. We're not going to have idol worship. We're going to draw a line on that. But you have months to make a decision on if you're going to stick with your idols or not. So think about that. So the execution of this was deliberate, methodical. There's an administrative process to it. The HR department steps in. This is something that is not done on a whim. It's done very intentionally. And the questioning is clearly about... Do you need to stick to your Baals, or can we get rid of these things? Are there any of them left in your home? Have you cleaned them out appropriately? Are you done for good and forever, and you're, you're going to be part of what we're doing here? Or do you insist on this? The New Testament version of this, Matthew makes it very, very clear. There is a process by which, if someone is defying the ways of that church, that you talk about it one-on-one. -on -one that doesn't work, you bring another elder with you. Here we have the elders involved too. And if that doesn't work, you tell the whole congregation, we have somebody in the church that's insisting on this sin and they won't give it up. And we're asking them to go somewhere else for fellowship if they go to church at all. But they're so out of line with what we're doing that they refuse to consecrate themselves in this matter. Again, this isn't about them just being Gentiles. This is about them choosing pagan worship. And the process of this is very deliberate. Uh, oftentimes, critics will just read the verse where they took women and children and sent them packing. They don't tend to read the whole chapter as to how that process looked. And among the sons of the priests who had taken pagan wives, the following were found of the sons of Yeshua, the, sons of, the son of Josadak, and his brothers, Maasiah, Eleazar, Jerob, and Gedaliah. That's four of them. And they gave their promise that they would put away their wives, and being guilty, they presented a ram of the flock as their trespass offering. So in verse 18 and 19, we get an example of a family that this changed their mind. We're going to make this right. We're going to give an offering. We're going to turn around. A ram, if you look in the Leviticus, was a willful offering for a trespass. The ram offering is one where I, I have become aware of my own rebellion, and I, wanna, I know about it, and I'm going to vow to stop sinning. That was a ram sacrifice, a trespass offering. Each person gets a chance to repent and do some of these verse 19 offerings. And some of them do, and some of them don't. Um, verse 19, therefore, might be for that, those first four names, but it could also be an indication of the rest of this list that we're talking about. Either way, I'll make the point of numbers here, and I'll go through them as we go. Verse 20, also the sons of Immer, Hanani and Zebediah, that's two of them. And of the sons of Haram, Maaseah, Elijah, Shemaiah, Jehiel, and Uzziah, that's another five. Of the sons of Pashur, Elionai, Maaseah, Ishmael, Nethanel, Josabad, Elasa, that's another six. Of the Levites, Josabad, Levites shouldn't have been messing with this, Shimei, Kelaliah, same as Kelita, Pethelhiah, Judah, and Eleazar, that's another six. Also of the singers, Elashib, of the gatekeepers, Shalom, Telem, and Uri, another four people. And of the others of Israel and the sons of Parash, Ramaiah, Jeziah, Malchiah, Mijamin, Eleazar, Malchazah, and Benaniah, Benaiah, that's another seven. The sons of Elam, Mataniah, 
Zechariah, Jehiel, Abdi, Jeremoth, and Eliah. That's another six. And of the sons of Zatu. Okay, cool name, Zatu. I, I don't know. For people having kids in the future, consider Zatu on your list. We don't use that name anymore, but that's a dang good name. Elionai, Elashabib, Mataniah, Jeremoth, Zabad. I like that one too. And Aziza, that's another six people. The sons of Bebai, Johananan, Hananiah, Zabai, and Athli, that's four. Of the sons of Bani, Meshulam, Malak. I can go through all these names. 29 has six of them. I'm going to skip the names. I'm sorry, you guys. Uh, 30, verse 30, the sons of Paath, Moab, they list another eight. The sons of Haram, they list another eight. Verse 33, they list another seven. Verse 34, the sons of Bani, they list a boatload of them there. You get 28. That family really went in on this. And then verse 43, the sons of Nebo, they got seven more there. And then verse 44, we wrap it up. All these had taken pagan wives, and some of them had wives by whom they had children. Now I had a choice. We are done with the chapter. But we got a little bit of time left. And this, let's sum up the whole book. And let's look at the application of this. That's a weird way to end a book. I, I think as we've gone through the Old Testament, it's probably the oddest ending that we have. All these had taken pagan wives, and some of them had wives by... So not all of them had kids. I think that's another blessing. Um, some of them had some children. But this is not a good list. This is not a good way to put your name in the Bible. There are good lists. This is not one of them. It's offensive to the people of God if they coddle the sinners and telling them and naming the households like this is they're naming the people that were the problem. And again, our sensibilities don't necessarily do this. We don't like to single out people when they're in trouble. But they've sinned. After months of interviews, they're going to stick to their sin and they're choosing to leave the nation of Israel versus sticking around and being there. So this is not that list. When they hear the proclamation, they did show up and they met and they talked with leaders, but they're saying we're going to, they or their wives are saying we're going to stick with our pagan habits. 1 Corinthians 7 talks about this. And again, this is kind of one of those things. 1 Corinthians 7 is an entire chapter that says, if you're married to an unbeliever in the new covenant, you stick it out. Unless there's abuse or adultery, you stick it out. And Paul makes it very clear. The whole point is that maybe by your behavior, that's a ministry you can bring those people into the kingdom of God. That with Malachi, God hates divorce. Yet Jesus was asked about divorce, and he didn't say, be not unequally yoked and get into all that. He just said, the only reason we have divorce laws is because humans are sinners. And the way God intended it was one man, one woman, married in sanctity for the rest of their lives. That's the intent. But we're way beyond intent with this chapter. We're into the stickiness of real life. And we're told, I think, in the New Testament very differently. Here, they're, they're setting themselves apart for Yahweh. Paul tells us a little bit different. Paul also says, same writer, 2 Corinthians 6.14, Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with unrighteousness? He's using the same principle of Ezra 10. And what communion has light with darkness? If we're supposed to be separated, why would you marry an unbeliever and then expect your family to come out right? So the same writer that says don't marry unbelievers says if you happen to already be married to an unbeliever when you're saved, stick it out. Use it as a ministry opportunity. And in other words, Paul is saying there's some common sense to be applied here and there's a situation-by-situation situation discernment that needs to happen. We don't make these decisions lightly. Uh, even in the Old Testament, these decisions came after months of deliberation and conversation. And then Ezra publishes the list to make all of Israel aware of which families were out. Like this is when you bring it to the body and say, we had to ask somebody to go somewhere else. So Ezra, and then Ezra Shechaniah, then Ezra Shechaniah and all the leaders, and then all of Israel comes together and they come to this decision about who they're going to be. And they're going to be God followers. Matthew 18, 17. If he refuses to hear, you tell it to the church. You name the person. You say, we as a body have had an issue with so-and-so. 
And we, and we tell it on. Ezra's doing the same thing. By documenting this and writing it down, he's letting the whole fellowship of Israel know these families refuse to get rid of the pagan idols. But if he refuses to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen or tax collector. We don't go on the attack with these folks. We say when you're ready to submit to the Lord, then you're welcome to come back to fellowship with us. But if this is a sticking point for you and you can't bend on this point, then this isn't your fellowship anymore. So it's not like we don't love heathens and tax collectors. Jesus picked a tax collector to be his disciple. But you treat people that don't want to be part of the church like they're not part of the church. Seems to be common sense. So Ezra sets a pattern here that we're going to see for the church that all unholy covenants are things we should be running from. And we should be looking for freedom from sin, not making agreements with sin. Don't make covenants with sin. And in that sense, we try to live as God's people as best we can within the messiness of life. And at least tend to our own hearts and tend to ourselves in that regard. There are some people that refuse God's way. And this is hard for Christians too. Why wouldn't everybody accept the love of Jesus Christ? It makes no sense to people that have experienced the love of Jesus Christ. Why wouldn't everybody want that? Very tough conversation. So um, verse 13, it says there are many people that showed up. We then see that everyone is there. But at the end of the chapter, all of these, verse 44, includes a grand total of 144 families. How many people made the trip in two waves? In the two waves we've seen, over 12,000 people come. So out of the 12,000 people that have come over in the two different waves, plus people that came in between, we likely have in Israel right now roughly 40, 40 to 50,000 people that are Yahweh-following Jews centered in the city of Jerusalem. Of that group of people, we see 114 where this was a problem. I just want to say that to put it in perspective. This is 0.13% of the population. And it's amazing to me how less than 1% of the population can cause corruption in the entire nation. And we see the same thing happening today. The, the deviance, the pagan practices, the weirdness that's going on is a very small percentage of the population that insists on this. World Economic Forum this week, they had a witch or a shaman praying over everybody on the forum and literally held their faces. I don't know how they do this with the COVID stuff and coughed a, a spell into each of their faces. Less than 1% of the... Not everybody's walking around like a witch. You don't have to walk around the world hating everybody you run into or being suspicious of everyone you run into. There's very few people that are resolute in this kind of sin. This is something where with most people you say, look, in our fellowship, we're not going to do the whole cough blessing in people's faces thing. We're, we're not going to do that. You think I joke with the ear poking stuff, but... Some of the, it gets weird. There's people that do weirdness. And to say that's just not going to happen here. We're not okay with that. And somebody that says, no, I'm going to do that if I darn well please it, you've got to have a really hard heart to want to insist on your own way in these things. So there is an expectation that many people are a problem here, and we assume that. But when you really look at what Ezra wrote down, it's, not, it's many people showed up to deal with their sin, very few people stuck with their sin. That when faced with it, most people will say, I want to do the right thing. and I, I want to be a good person. How do I do that? Huge reduction from verse 13 to the end of the list. Almost everyone in Israel just puts away the idols. I don't need them so much. And this is an interesting thing. We should take sin this seriously too. And I think Ezra's just, the entire book is about this revival in Israel. And the core of this revival, the book ends on the point of people abandoning their sin and the people that don't want to do it, they're just not part of the body anymore. They can take off and go wherever they'd like to go. This many exceptions that get made are things that water down the message of God's people. And if we aren't pure and we're hypocrites and people walk into a church and all they see are a bunch of hypocrites, well, maybe we need more hypocrite detectors and they should probably come to church for that reason. But at the other sense, like, why are they seeing so many hypocrites? Why aren't Christians just living what we say we're supposed to do? Also, I, I would point out that 
This is not a loud mob of Frankenstein chasing pitchfork wielders. This is an administrative mob that's in control, deliberate, thoughtful, and merciful when they do it. Oh, for the church to be more like that. Instead of running around yelling at everybody else for what they're doing wrong, why can't we just tend to our own administrative behavior and be the purity that's an exception to the world that's out there? Why can't we think, you know what? We're going to delay this because of the weather. And I just think of the application of that. When we need to deal with people's sins, shouldn't we lean to the side of mercy, giving chance after chance after chance until we see a hardness of heart that just isn't going to change? But we lean to the side of that. Oftentimes people come into the church and they do have sin in their life. They are a mess. That's why they're coming to the church. They're broken or maybe they don't even believe Christianity. But until they've gotten to a point where they're insistent on their sin, why don't we have more mercy? Why don't we put off some things because of the weather? And just say, you know what? This isn't the right time for them to deal with that. And in the meantime, as long as they're not bringing their idols into other people's houses, maybe we can just let that go for a little bit. Again, there's a balance here between an intolerance for sin and mercy for the sinner. And we see both of those things in Ezra. The interviews, allowing people to have conversations around these things. And if they want to seek God and they have a, a heart that wants to seek God, that we have the ability to have conversations with people around that that are intelligent and balanced and loving an interrelationship situation. And that might take months. I like that idea too. Some of these changes took time. And for people to get their life straightened out and organized, sometimes it takes years, not just months. But if the growth is happening, God bless them. And that's where we, we celebrate in the kingdom of God. Even though they're convicted and repentant of their sin, it might take time to take action and get that stuff out of their life. But hopefully they're seeing an alternative when they come to church that motivates them to get this stuff out of their life. They actually see what holiness looks like. And it's not that we're perfect people, but we can live under God's law. We can act in such a way that those laws are carried out and seen. And we can do it with a pure heart and a good conscience. Not because we have the in, innate ability, but because we're given the seed of the Holy Spirit, like John said, and that's what God has put in us to have a new life in Christ. That new life in Christ is a consecrated life. It's a set-apart life. The careful accounting, recording, the naming of names, the public uh, the accounting, the fact that they don't kill the pagans, they simply invite them to leave. All of these things add up to this idea of a, a balanced approach to how they deal with sin. So then we look for Christ. We look to Christ for how to do all this. How did Christ separate himself? Does separating himself mean physical? Absolutely not. He ate with sinners. He hung out with sinners. He was in the world. He was there, but he spiritually separated himself in every one of those situations. He could eat with sinners and not be a sinner. And if we look to Jesus for how to separate ourselves, he visited and ate with people. There was a hospitality piece there. He was able to even not just sit down with tax collectors, but he sat down with the Pharisees that were going to team up and kill him. And if we can have that kind of love for people, we can have discussions. We can accept invitations. We don't walk in thinking, ooh, if you touch me, you'll defile me. Right? We don't act like that as Christians. Because defilement is something that comes from the heart, not something that comes from physical touch. And, you know, depending on what you're touching, I suppose. But I think you get what I mean. Jesus remained holy and consecrated and without sin, even though he dealt with sinners every day of his life. And again, there's this idea of this is about keeping house. It is not about judging the world. It's about judging ourselves internally and taking care of ourselves. And this is so obvious. I just want to close on a passage in 1 Corinthians 5. I'm going to read a larger passage if you want to turn there. 1 Corinthians 5. Turn to Corinthians twice tonight because they deal with these issues. How do we deal with this? And, and, and I do think they're reacting in a bit to the traditions left by Ezra and how they dealt with it. So 1 Corinthians 5, verse 9. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet, I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous, or the extortioners, or the idolaters, since you would need to go out of the world. You can't 
not interact with sinners. You have to interact with sinners. We are not to be like living in our hobbit holes all the time, though our hobbit holes are very comfortable. But now I have written you to not keep company with anyone named a brother who's sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner and not even eat with such a person. Do you get the distinction he's making? You have to live in a world with sinners, but you don't have to have them in your church approving of that sin by not dealing with it. So when it comes to someone who comes as a brother in verse 11, like that's different. So Israel under Ezra, they're not out attacking the Canaanites like they did in, in the judges. They're not out fighting battles with them. This is a different era of God's history, but they are tending to themselves. And they are saying we are going to be holy regardless of what the Canaanites do around us. And the Moabites and the Ammonites and the Perizzites and the Philistines and the Persians and the Babylonians, they can do their thing. We're going to do our thing. And there's a distinction between the two. So Paul makes that point. He didn't mean you can't be around immoral people in the world. He meant you don't need immoral people in the body where you're approving of that sin. For what have I to do with judging those who are outside? I don't have any position to judge somebody outside the fellowship. Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges. He'll take care of those people. Therefore, same conclusion as Ezra, put away from yourselves the evil person. Cast them out and send them packing. Again, that's a tough message. Ezra's a, leading a revival of the people to repair and rebuild a house of God and build, and this is the wall of protection that he puts around it. And we get an example of what that looks like. The remnant that's left that wants to follow Yahweh, they're living in and among pagan nations and pagan people. I don't think this is a negative ending to the book. I think this is a happy ending to the book. And follow me on this. Lives are changed for the better in doing this. Idol worship leaves the Jewish people forever because of this. And it's all about perspective. The world teaches us to think of these kinds of things as bad. The Bible teaches us to think of these things as a celebration. Finally, God's people had enough backbone to say, enough of this stuff. We're not going to do this among us here as a body. We're not going to celebrate and entertain drunkenness and notice the list that Paul gave. You know, if anyone in the room right now is extorting someone, you need to stop extorting people. Like, this is the world Paul lived in. And that these are big things. These aren't the little teeny things, those nitpicky things we do to each other, right? If you're an idolater, please stop being an idolater. You can't be an idolater and call yourself a person of God. These are the big things under the law that Paul is talking about. I'm gonna, okay, I'll end on Chuck Smith's quote. I like this. You don't have to go on and continue in those things that are destroying you. You can be set free today. It's the power of God unto salvation. That's the happy ending. You don't have to be in covenant with sin because God set you free from that. You can choose to live a life that's heading in a different direction. They do their work with diligence. They're renewed in the heart. And, under, and they have a commonness of spirit to say we're done with sin. And that's the end of the book of Ezra. That's the happy ending. It's God's people are in the best possible situation to set up for the Messiah. And next week we'll go on to Nehemiah. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we just stop for a moment as we finish this chapter. And Lord, I've put a lot of commentary in tonight. And Lord, I pray that that added clarity, not confusion. So, Lord, as we discuss tonight and we talk about this chapter, I pray that you bless that conversation. Help us to leave here tonight being confident in your word and, and like David, celebrating your law and the goodness of it at the end of the day. And, Lord, we come before you as a people and we recognize that we are sinners. Lord, help us to get rid of sin. And help us to understand the balance between those two things. And Lord, give us mercy as we figure this out and we work on it. Lord, the goal isn't to, to beat people up or browbeat them with every little sin that we can identify. But Lord, the goal is mercy and purity. And those two things are good. And Lord, I just pray for each person here tonight that as they go into their lives tomorrow and this week, that they win more battles than they lose against sin. 
that spiritually, Lord, you awaken in us a heart for purity, that we want purity more than we want the things of this world. So Lord, change us, renew us, revive us, repair us, rebuild us, and protect us. In Jesus' name.